All right, we're diving in part four of our series on the walk. How is your walk these days? You don't have to answer that uh, out loud, but just, you know, as we talk about this series, we're talking about our relationship with God. What's that like? You know, how Enoch walked with God and then he was not. What is that really like for you? Are we cultivating real relationship with Jesus? And that's what we're doing over the, the, the last few weeks as we've been diving into this sermon series. We're asking ourselves, what does it take to have a real relationship with Jesus? And we're looking at the disciples' journey with Jesus as a case study, because if anybody knew what it was like to walk with Jesus, it was the twelve. They were literally walking with him. They were literally cultivating a relationship with him. And by the end of his life, Jesus says, I have have finished the work that you brought me here to do, that you sent me here to do, and that is to give eternal life. And he defines eternal life as knowing God. I finished that work, Jesus said. The disciples are knowing God, and that's what we we want to experience too. So we're exploring these essentials in a relative sequence. I hope you've been catching that. You know, um, and if you've missed any of those steps along the way, uh, you can go back to our church website, castlerockadventist.church, and kind of pick up those audio recordings there. But having said that, these essentials are not, I don't want us to think of these steps as, okay, once I do it, then, you know, once and done type of thing. It's in the bag. No, I, I want us to think of these experiences as ongoing realities. Okay, so beholding the love of God, that's an ongoing reality, though it's the very first step. It's, it's a continual step. Uh, seeing our need as sinners in need of grace, uh, repentance and confession, these are things that are ongoing. So today, another dynamic that we're exploring, as Gene was kind of uh, easing us into, is the experience of surrender. Can everybody just say that all together? One, two, three. Surrender. Now, it rolls off of our tongue pretty easily, but what does it really mean and look like? And even if you know what it means, how enthusiastic are you about surrender? So I remember um, as a young person, I I had the privilege of having a youth pastor my senior year in high school come to town. His name was Steve Hamilton. Some of you know him. And uh, he started this Wednesday night youth group Bible study in his home. And that was something, like, that was a super formative time for me. That was a time when my spiritual interest was high. There was another individual who was driving an hour every Wednesday night from his hometown to be at that uh, Wednesday night Bible study. And every time we'd get together, we'd just share, like, man, this is what I've been reading. This is what I've been studying. And it was, it was like uh, iron sharpening iron in that youth group. It was, it was really, really awesome. When I went to college... Um, when, uh, you know, I missed it. So every time I had a school break or whatever, spring break, and I was there midweek, I would, I would dive right into that. And I remember one night, you know, regrouping with that, that high school Bible study. And, um, my youth pastor, he's Steve, he says, you know what, man, this is what I've been thinking about lately. It's been so radical in my mind. And I was like, what is it? What is it? Tell me, I want to know. And he says, surrender. And you know what? For me, I was like, yeah, what's the big deal? (laughs) I heard that and I thought, that's cool. You can tell me about it later. I don't know. There wasn't much more. I think he was waiting for me to bite so that he could tell me about what he was reading and studying and all this stuff, but I didn't. And I, you know, I just share that story because I think that when we talk about surrender, some of us can feel like, oh yeah, been there, done that. Some of us can feel like, well, that's not really something I want to hear about right now. Or some of us can feel uh, less than enthusiastic about it. And I just want to encourage us today that as we study this, 
It may seem elementary, it may seem passe, it may seem like it's not relevant. But I tell you what, it's something that you and I need today. As long as it's called today, it will always be something you and I need. All right, so we're going to dive into this study, and we're going to start with where we left off last week, okay? So let's go to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, we saw Peter's... uh, just kind of being overwhelmed with repentance um, as he is in Jesus' presence. So we're in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. I'm reading from the New King James Version today. And if you're there, go ahead and say, Amen. Luke chapter 5. You know, we're not going to rehash all of last week's sermon, but Peter has many experiences here. He sees the love of God. He sees his own need. And then he's brought to his knees before God. Pride is rent asunder and laid to the dust. He says, depart from me, this is verse 8, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But subsequent to beholding Jesus' love, subsequent to having his pride broken, notice what happens in verse 11. So when they had brought their boats to land, remember, they've just filled their nets Uh, Peter's boat couldn't even handle it all, so James and John, they had to help them bring this to shore. Verse 11, So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and did what? And followed him. So here in the boat, Jesus Jesus reveals his power, Jesus reveals his mercy. Peter is understanding of who he is and what he's not. And his immediate response is to forsake all and follow Jesus. Apparently, just kind of a surface level understanding here, apparently forsaking all goes hand in hand with following completely. You catch that? Prior to this, Peter, James, John... They had connected with Jesus. Prior to this, they had seen his miracles. Prior to this, they had heard his teaching. But it wasn't until this point that they followed him completely. It wasn't until this point that they they truly united their lives with him. So somewhere along the line, following fully goes hand in hand with forsaking completely. Remember, this is forsaking all. They forsook all and followed him. This, I would say, is surrender. Okay, the, I, I, yeah, I'm trying to think of uh, where in the English translation of the Bible the word surrender actually shows up. I don't recall anything here, but what we understand is Peter, James, John, the disciples here, they're giving things up so that they can follow Jesus. They're saying no to certain things so that they can say yes to Jesus. And this surrender was complete. It was forsaking all. This surrender also, I would say, was not something that they contrived, not something that they premeditated in their minds. It was something that they responded with. Do you understand that surrender is a response? Surrender is not an initiative that we take. It's not something we tell ourselves, okay, one, two, three, surrender. No. Surrender is a response. A response to what? A response to seeing the goodness of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul puts it it like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of what? 
in view of God's mercy. So he's urging us to do something in view of something else. Chapters 1 through 11 of Romans is a description of God's mercy. We'll just say that in broad strokes, okay? In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. So offering our lives in surrender, offering our lives as a living sacrifice, we'll get to that in just a little bit, offering our lives as a living sacrifice is a response to seeing God's mercy. It's never something we just say, you know what, this is a good thing for me to do. No, it happens when we see God's mercy, in view of God's mercy. And this is really interesting because the the language that Paul uses is very uh, absolute. We'll say it like that. A living sacrifice. That's pretty intense. You know, it's not just a living commitment. It's a living sacrifice. When, When Paul and other Jewish authors use the word sacrifice, what mental image are they drawing up in their mind? Yeah, an animal being laid on an altar. This is pretty intense. Uh, The reality is that sacrifice and surrender is not in degrees or partiality. You know, it's not not in part, but in whole. You understand what I mean by that? There's not a sacrifice that is, um, well, let's just... Uh, let's just be a partial sacrifice. You know, it's, it's either you're a sacrifice or you're not a sacrifice. Uh, someone said, uh, you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. Okay, <laughs> this, this doesn't happen in degrees. Okay, this is something that is entirely true or not entirely true. In fact, um, you know, we've been kind of following some of the themes of Steps to Christ. And in chapter 5, you find this. We cannot be half the Lord's and half the world's. We are not God's children unless we are such how much? Entirely. Yeah? This is what Paul is talking about when he says living sacrifice. Now, I want us to see something here that sur- surrender is entire. You know, it's either all or nothing. And it's also a response. And it's a response to beholding God's love in such a life-changing way. And while the disciples experience this here in Luke 5, we see, okay, Peter, James, John, probably Andrew is there too. They see God's goodness, God's power, God's mercy through the presence of Jesus. And while they experience this response of surrender, um, while, they, while they had a very real experience of surrender right here, I will say this, they had an ongoing need for that surrender throughout their life with Jesus. Okay. In other words, uh, when you look at how the disciples journeyed with Jesus, and then we're going to look at a few verses here together, but what we'll see is that they had an ongoing need. Jesus needed to keep instructing the disciples or keep bringing to their awareness their need for surrender. So he does this several times. He refreshes their awareness of surrender. So let's, let's go to a few places in the Gospel of Matthew together. All right. So Matthew chapter chapter 8. Let's go there. Matthew chapter 8. This is after the Sermon on the Mount. And so kind of early on in the life and ministry that they have with Jesus. Following the disciples' journey here, what does Jesus teach them about surrender? We're in Matthew chapter 8, the first gospel, first book of the New Testament. When you're there, say, I'm there. All right, Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 is where we'll start. Matthew 8, 18, the Bible says this, When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, 
I will follow you wherever you go. Okay? And if you're one of the disciples who has been called to follow already, you know, you realize, hey, man, this, this man is a, a, a man with a cause. He's got a kingdom. I want to follow him. Hey, let, let's garner some support. You'd probably hear this kind of dialogue between Jesus and another individual. Apparently, it's a certain scribe here. And you'd probably be supportive of that. Yeah, let's get some more people on our team. Okay? But notice how Jesus responds. Verse 20, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, Jesus, maybe we need a different PR manager here, you know? <laughs> like maybe we need to rewrite our slogans a little bit better to be more appealing. No, this is not what's happening. Jesus is drawing a line. He's saying, wait, to follow me, to walk with me, there's a cost to that. Don't just jump on the bandwagon because it might be a feel-good, popular thing. No, Jesus is being very straightforward with it. Well, he keeps going. Verse 21, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, so apparently someone who is kind of tracking with Jesus' ministry, he's called a disciple, not necessarily a formal apostle. But then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Well, that's, that's a noble thing to do, you know. <laughs> Honor your father and mother, the commandments say. That's a good sentiment. But verse 22, Jesus said to him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. Boom! What in the world? Jesus, this is kind of a little bit of a turnoff, don't you think? You're being a little bit harsh to someone who's grieving the life or the death of his father. What's going on? Here's what's going on. Jesus isn't being insensitive. He's just being clear. That following Walking with Jesus requires placing a supreme priority on Jesus. A priority that is sometimes mutually exclusive from other priorities. A priority on Him above any earthly concern or any earthly relationship. And this isn't to say that we neglect earthly concerns or we neglect earthly relationships, but that when we seek first the kingdom of God, we've got to trust that He will give all these other things to us. Yeah? Does that make sense? So we don't neglect these things, but we we trust all of our earthly concerns and relationships to Him, trusting that He will give to us what is needed most. Yeah. All right, so that's Matthew 8. This is kind of early on. Let's keep going a few, uh, maybe months, maybe even halfway through their three and a half year experience on earth with Jesus. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And this, it was, it was another pivot point for the disciples' journey. Matthew chapter 16. When you're there, say, I'm there. Peter has this little bit of a dialogue with Jesus. Jesus kind of takes an opinion poll. You know, hey, who do people say that I am? Well, some say that you're Elijah raised from the dead. Some say that you're the prophet that was, you know, predicted in the Old Testament, etc., etc. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, oh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus affirms him and says, hey, Peter, you didn't just come up with this. This was spirit granted. This was a divine revelation. And then in verse 21, Jesus is doing something with the disciples that he had not done before. The Bible says in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began. Okay, so this is the very first time he's doing something. What is it that he's doing for the very first time? From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. The first time he's laying it on to them. Okay, they've been playing follow the leader for several months, maybe even a year or so. They've been playing, I shouldn't say playing, they, they've been following, okay? They know that where he goes, that's where I want to go. But Jesus is saying, do you know what my destination is right now? <laughs> my destination is Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem I'll suffer and be killed. And there's a dawning of implications here. Wait, the one that I'm following will eventually be crucified. Which means, if anyone's played follow the leader, if someone jumps up on a chair, if the leader jumps up on the chair, what are you going to do? You're going to jump up on the chair. If the leader jumps down the chair, what are you going to do? You're going to jump down off the chair. If the leader jumps up on a cross, Peter scratches his head. (laughs) Wait a minute. That's not what I signed up for. Verse 22, Then Peter took him aside began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this shall not happen to you. Verse 23, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. As if Peter were trying to protect Jesus, you know, trying to preserve this king and Messiah. No, 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 no. He's actually voicing the very doubts that the devil has been planting in Jesus' heart and mind. Man! And in verse 24, in verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to, what does the next few words in your Bible say? Mine says, if anyone desires to come after me, does anybody else say it differently? No? Okay. Come after me or follow me. Okay? This is, this is the... Again, we're talking about following fully, surrendering fully. If anyone wants to do this, what's really interesting to me is that they've already decided to do that. They've already decided to do that. They did that at the boat. They did that at the sea. They decided to forsake all and follow him. But here, Jesus is opening up something brand new. Do you know where I'm leading? <laughs> do you know where you're going to follow to? And then he opens it up and says... If you want an out, here's your out. If anyone wants to follow me. He's not assuming anything about this. This commitment is something that needs to be renewed. If anyone desires to come after me, Bonhoeffer, I don't know if you've heard of that name, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Christian uh, that lived around the time of Hitler's regime. And uh, he was one that stood firm to some convictions that maybe some of us wouldn't have the courage to stand up for. But Bonhoeffer points out that even here, Jesus once more sets them free to choose whether or not to reject him. And Jesus gives them an out as he introduces to them the fuller implications of following, of walking with him. So let's take a note. What are those conditions? What does surrender require? If anyone desires to come after me, what's the first one? Let him deny himself. Right? Let him deny himself. So what does surrender require? Surrender requires denial of self. In the Greek form, this is, a, this is a, not just deny like turn away. This is an intense version of deny. It's the same deny that Jesus tells Peter he's going to do to him. So to deny self 
is to say the very same things about ourselves that Peter said about Jesus. To deny self. Let's let's see here. Bonhoeffer puts this a lot more eloquently than I do. The disciple must say to himself the same words Peter said of Christ when he denied him. I know not this man. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. Whoa, just let that sink in. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way. Keep close to him. Wow, that's condition number one. That's the, what, the requirement of surrender, of following Jesus, to deny ourselves. But there's another one. Um, he goes on, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and do what else? Take up his cross. Take up his A cross is not just some nice uh, piece of furniture that you put in your living room. To take up a cross is to take up an instrument of death. It's putting death to self. To follow Jesus and truly live a life of walking with Him involves the death of something. To say yes to Him means saying no to other things, but it's not just anything. It's saying no to living for self, to living by the power of self. I think Paul puts it like this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't know if you realize this, but crucifixion, we can take up our cross, but we can't crucify ourselves. We can make the choice to put self to death, but you and I have no power to put self to death. Crucifixion is not self-inflicted. Rather, as Paul says, it's, it's by faith. The life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith. This life of surrender is something that I do not by my own power. It's by trusting the power of Jesus to make that happen in me. Trying to follow Jesus and live the surrendered life in our own power, I hope you realize, is a worthless religion. Oh, man. Don't try it. It's not highly recommended. Not at all. Not at all. Don't, don't try to live a surrendered life in and of your own power. Do what Paul is talking about. The life I live, it's, it's by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the implication here is that surrender is tied intricately with faith, faith and trust, which is exactly what Gene was talking about there. It's inseparably, inseparably tied to faith, full reliance upon Jesus and not ourselves, which, if we're still here in Matthew chapter 16, you kind of look a little bit at the, con- the context of where this whole, you know, let him deny himself, take up his cross. That whole chapter, Jesus is kind of uh, sighing over the religious leader's unbelief, the disciples', le- uh, the disciples unbelief, their lack of faith. And so really, surrender is tied to faith and trust. This comes on the heels of pointing out the unbelief of the Pharisees and Sadducees and even the disciples. So if denial and death were not intense enough, you know, surrender requires uh, denial of self. Oh, boy, here, oh, let me read this, let me read this. Talking about doing this on our own. There are those who profess to serve God while they rely upon their own efforts to obey His law, to form a right character and secure salvation. 
Their hearts are not moved by any deep sense of the love of Christ, but they seek to perform the duties of the Christian life as that which God requires of them in order to gain heaven. Okay, this is surrender by effort. But then she says, such religion is worth nothing. Worth nothing. Uh, in, other, in another place, you, you could hear her say, such religion is pure drudgery. <laughs> Just don't even try it. Don't even try it. I want to be moved by a deep sense of the love of Christ. Man. Um, let's keep going here. So surrender requires denial of self, a death of self. But lastly, if this were not intense enough, when Luke records this whole conversation, uh, he adds one word. It says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Okay? So it's not just a death of self, um, denial of self or death of self. It, it requires daily renewal. Remember, surrender is our response to God's love, to God's mercy. And do you know that God gives His love, God commands His love to you and me every single morning? You know, Psalm 42, I think it is. Psalm 42 says God commands or directs His loving kindness to us in the daytime. In uh, Lamentations 3, it says His mercies are new every morning. So when God's mercies are new every morning, there is an appropriate response every morning. If God's love is new every day, there's an appropriate response to that love every day. And what is that response? In view of God's mercy, offer your lives as living sacrifices. Surrender is something that ought to be renewed day by day. Do you know that you and I need God's grace every day? Do we, are we real with that? You know, the problematic reality, when Paul calls us living sacrifices, yeah, he's talking about the entirety of you know, giving all, but he's also kind of hinting at something. That there's a problem with living sacrifices. And the problem is there's a tendency for living sacrifices to walk off the altar. Yeah? That's the problem. <laughs> there's a, we need to surrender our, ourselves daily, each day, to choose to disown self, to give ourselves to God. And you, you know, sometimes you wonder, why, why did the, you know, the ancient uh, Israelite system, you know, the temple services, why, why is it so regular and systematic and every single morning and every single evening there is a morning sacrifice, an evening sacrifice. Do you know why? God was trying to communicate something about His heart toward us. That His forgiveness and mercy were available to us at all times. Morning, evening, and everything in between. But He was also communicating something, not just about His heart to us, but about our hearts toward Him. That our hearts were always in need of forgiveness. That there was never a time, morning, evening, and every time between, that we don't need His mercy and grace. So we know we need surrender, but the reality is that it doesn't come easy. Can we be real with that today? Being a living sacrifice, yeah, it's a response to God's love. It's the only natural, it's the only appropriate response to God's love. But surrender isn't something that is easy. Especially when you describe it in terms like this, that it's denial of self, death of self, requires daily renewal. This is not even something that's pleasant. And if the disciples didn't know their own hearts well enough, they saw, they certainly saw the struggle. 
in a certain individual. We hear about him, we read about him in Matthew chapter 19, but I actually want to look at this story in Mark. So go with me to Mark, and this is where we'll finish up. Mark chapter 8, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse, beginning in verse 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. You know, the disciples, they're hearing this. They're hearing this at various times. They've heard this from the very beginning. No man can serve two masters. Uh, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But, you know, Son of Man doesn't. Um, they're starting to hear it now. Oh, man, to follow Jesus requires a denial of self, a disowning of self, and actually a death of self. And they're struggling probably in their own hearts to, to kind of make sense of this. And they, they see it now outside of themselves in this conversation that Jesus has with a rich, young ruler. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. If you're there, say amen. Okay, verse 17. Here's a rich young man. He has just seen Jesus pulling kids to himself and blessing them, putting his hands on them. You know, he, he sees the disciples trying to like edge them out of his presence and stuff. But Jesus now, like a magnet, he wants to bless these kids. He sees what's happening. And this rich young ruler sees it from a distance. And according to verse 17, it says, Now as he was going out on the road, one came running. It's almost as if the rich young man was like, I want that blessing too. You know, let me come in and get it. He, he runs. He's not only running, he's kneeling. One came running, knelt before him, and asked. So this is a man who feels his need. And he asks him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? (laughs) No one is good but one, that is God. Jesus isn't denying his divinity right here. He's just making sure that this rich young man actually acknowledges it too. Do you know what you're saying by calling me good? You know the commandments, verse 19. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. But notice verse 20. And he answered and said to him, Teacher. (laughs) Did you notice how his address to Jesus changed? goes from good teacher, oh, wait, 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 do I really know what I'm saying? Teacher, (laughs) okay, so he's actually struggling there. Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Just, just, just listen to this response. Try to read his heart a little bit. He has a twofold struggle that's going on in his, one, he's not sure what to make of Jesus. We've already kind of decided that. Are you good? Are you God or not? You know, and he's just kind of playing it safe. But two, he's not sure what to make of his dutiful life. I've been upstanding. I've been in Pathfinders. I've been in Sabbath school. I've, you know, I've done all of this. But he doesn't feel as, as if that has satisfied his soul need. It is possible to outwardly obey, fit all the criteria, to check all the boxes, and still lack eternal life. Why? Because eternal life is knowing God. He struggled with this, but I love verse 21, then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. We may struggle with this. 
We may struggle with having it all put together outwardly, having it all kind of checked off in our own conscience, in our mind, but our soul need is empty, lacking. But Jesus loves us. And He makes, to this man who has a twofold struggle, He makes a twofold invitation. Verse 21, One thing you lack. All right? He's trying to put, put a pulse on what the man already feels. One thing you lack. Go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor. Wait a minute, wouldn't he be lacking more? (laughs) Jesus sees something different. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come. Take up the what? Take up the cross and follow me. To have eternal life, Jesus says, forsake all. (laughs) To have eternal life, take up your cross and Follow him. What was the one thing he lacked? Jesus. What was the one thing he lacked? The willingness to forsake all so he could follow completely. What was the one thing he lacked? The ruler had great riches, but the one thing he lacked was relationship with Jesus. And the ruler? He didn't have an easy time with this. I imagine that as the disciples are kind of standing about, like, hey, we could really use this guy on our team. He's got resources. As they're watching this, they're reading his face, they see the struggle that's going on in his heart. Verse 22, But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The ruler struggled to surrender. Why? I don't know if there's an easy way to explain it, but I'll just say this, that the war against self is the greatest battle that we could ever fight. And this is what was going on in his heart and mind. The ruler's response reflects our inability to perceive what's really of value, what's really of our treasure. You know, what do we really give up? When Jesus says, forsake all, when Jesus says, take up the cross, put death to self, what are we really giving up when we give all to Jesus? A sin-polluted heart. For God to clean up and to restore by His matchless love? I'll give that up! Come on! Why? Why Why should we ever be ashamed to, to do so? But what do we give up when we give up all? A sin-polluted heart for Jesus to purify, to cleanse by His own blood, and to save by His matchless love. Would that all who have not chosen Christ might realize that He has something vastly better to offer them than they are seeking for themselves. The rich young ruler could not perceive this. That Jesus was calling him to take up a cross and follow Him. That did not weigh out in in terms of what he would have to give up. He thought, no, this is what I need. But Jesus has something vastly better than we could ever seek for ourselves. Ever, ever seek for ourselves. Maybe you ask, you know, uh, does the surrendered Christian then have nothing? (laughs) Maybe, but not necessarily, right? When we've surrendered all to Jesus, when we deny self and let Jesus be all to us, then we can trust that anything else that we should or could have will be granted to us through Christ. That treasure is a trust from Jesus, whatever it is that we treasure. That pleasure 
is a, is a gift from Jesus. That relationship is a privilege from Jesus. And he treasures pleasures or relationships that aren't from him or for him can never truly be for me. Let me say that again. Any treasure, pleasure, a relationship that isn't from him or for him can never truly be for me. Some of us are, when we deal with surrender and we struggle with that, we're thinking, but how could I do without this? Could it be that Jesus has something vastly better than we could ever seek for ourselves? How could I do without this pleasure? How could I do without this treasure? How could I do without this relationship? Could it be that Jesus has something vastly better than we could ever seek for ourselves? Uh, I'm preaching to myself hard here because I, I long to know Jesus. And I hope that you're not hearing surrender as I heard it from my youth pastor that day. This is life. Jesus is life. And when the disciples debrief with Jesus after this whole rich young ruler experience, they're in disbelief. Verse 23, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words because in their minds they thought riches are a sign of salvation. Riches are a sign of blessing from God. Oh man, this rich young ruler, he must be blessed of God. And Jesus is saying, how hard it is for those who have these things to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches, in other words, trust in self, trust in what they ac- accumulate for themselves rather than what God grants to them. How hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which happens not just like hyperbole, you know, whatever. You know, th- this, is, this is a camel having to get on its knees and unload its pack to get through the city gate. It requires humility and surrender, is what Jesus is saying. Verse 26, they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? How is this kind of surrender even possible? And I love Jesus' response. But Jesus looked at them, right? He's not just talking to the air about this. He looks at them with men. It's impossible. Crucifixion, not self-inflicted. But not with God. For with God, all things are possible. The implication? Entire surrender, forsaking all to follow Jesus, in itself is a gift we receive from the impossible God. It's a gift we receive from God. So the simple question at the end of the day is, will we ask for the gift of entire surrender to Jesus? Why wouldn't we? Maybe because we're fearful or hesitant to yield what we've habitually cherished and found significance in. I urge you, friends, Jesus has something far better than we could ever seek for ourselves. Choose to trust that the one who created us, the one who holds the very breath of our lungs in his hand, the one who created our heart, our desires, he knows how to satisfy our heart and desires. 
Maybe you're feeling doubtful because of your own past broken promises. Uh, Maybe your promises are like ropes of sand. Friend, don't trust to your own insufficiency. Choose to trust in Him today. I don't know if we really estimate the power of choice to simply choose to put our will on the side of God's will. And when we do that, Oh man, I I urge you, bust out Steps to Christ again. Read the last three paragraphs of chapter 5, please, before the day is over. Read the last three paragraphs of chapter 5 called Consecration. How are we to make an entire surrender? We need to understand the, the true force of the will. If I choose to trust Him, I don't have the power to surrender, but I can choose to surrender. And when I put my choice on the side of His will... God works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. That's Philippians 2.13. He can do it. He's the one for whom this is possible. So choose Him today and let Him work in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. We're going to sing a song here to close. And I urge you just, just to let this song be the prayer of your heart. You know, the chorus is kind of, I'll invite the song team forward. The chorus says, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. The reality is, I mean, we might be able to change the sentiment of that. Lord, take from me my heart (laughs) because I don't have the power to give it to you. So can can we stand together as we sing this song, the song of surrender?